Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is God's word. Thank you. It's so nice to be back with you all to share a bit of God's word. Shall we pray? Almighty God, our Father, we come to you and we pray. We pray that I would speak with words from the Spirit. Pray you make this passage clear to our lives so that uh, this year, 2019, this network of co-mission and our desire to plant churches to reach the lost might be all it could be for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. There's a great English tradition of naming villages with uh, weird names. I don't know if you've noticed. Great and little are some of the common ones. So you could go to Great Shelford and Little Shelford, just a little bit further down the road. Great, you know, it's the sort of the big version. And Little is the, I don't know, the little satellite village that grew up around it. Great Chew and Little Chew. Great Missenden and Little Missenden. There's all sorts of other adjectives that I also enjoy, but that's not, the, that's not my point here, so we won't go there. I want to bring to your attention our passage, a little commission. There's the Great Commission in Scripture, which is famously in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. But here, in Mark chapter 14, I think I've stumbled across a little commission. This passage has been burning in my bones a little bit since um, October, when someone first pointed it to me, and I've been looking for an opportunity to preach it. And uh, then I was invited to come here, and I thought, aha, I can do it at last. And what, what first struck me when I first saw it in October was uh, this woman. Did you notice this woman? She's incredible. When everyone else is sort of cold and frosty towards Jesus Christ, she's lavish and extravagant. Nothing's too much trouble for her or expense. And so I thought, wow, this woman is incredible. I'd love to preach a sermon about her. But what I didn't expect was the little commission that pops up in verse 9. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she's done will also be told in memory of her. 
I've noticed before what, what she's done will also be told in memory of her, this amazing statement that she's going to be world famous. What I don't think I had noticed before is Jesus' little commission, his throwaway comment that nonetheless is going to guide the agenda for the whole church until he comes back. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world. Do you see what he's doing? That's not a direct imperative or, or a command. It's not him eyeballing you and saying, go and make disciples. But it is him rather nonchalantly saying, the gospel is going to be preached in, th- in the whole world. And while they're doing it, they'll talk about this woman. It's the little commission. It's the little village version of Matthew chapter 28. But it's so caught my imagination and attention. I just want to um, unpack it for a few moments with you. It suits us in commission, this passage. Because in commission, as we think about what God is doing in our network this Sunday, uh, we have this stated aim. We love to plant churches to reach the lost in London. We love to plant 30 reformed evangelical churches by 2020. We seem to be on track to do that wonderfully. Thanks be to God. But we'd love to plant 60 by 2025. I mean, if God did that, it would be so wonderful. If, there was, if we kept going at the rate we're going and we were able to plant 60 churches that weren't there before, praise God. And uh, this seems to be very much in line with Jesus' little commission here. The gospel will be preached, of course, of course it will be, throughout the world. So get with the program. It, it brings me a, a lot of joy to come and be able to do a little debrief with you here uh, four months into church planting, church grafting at St. Paul's Harringate. I'm seeing this. The gospel will be preached throughout the whole world, throughout the whole city of London and all the, all the nations who are annexed to London. On the first day in the job when I was at, at St. Paul's, I left Christchurch Mayfair amid much weeping and gnashing of teeth. And uh, I turned up to lead my first service. It's very strange. I have to wear all these robes that I'm deeply uncomfortable in and um, use lots of liturgy that I wasn't used to. But on the first day, I'm sure God sent me this particular person to encourage me and say, keep going. Uh, I, I saw him sitting at the back of church and I thought, I, ha- I haven't seen you before. And at the end of the service, I, I made a beeline for him. I just wanted to know who he was. And he said, nice to meet you. I've just come out of Ramadan. And I had a dream. And God said, uh, go to uh, local uh, morning prayer. And he said, I knew that phrase, morning prayer, meant church. So I just turned up to my local church. Nice to meet you. I said, wow, nice to meet you too. (laughs) I've never had this before. (laughs) I don't know if I ever will again. I don't know if God normally works in those ways. I don't know, but he did that day. And if you haven't got, if you haven't got in your local church someone there who can articulate the gospel at that moment, if there is no one there who's been discipled to to meet somebody and say, it's so good to meet you, would you like me to explain how you could be saved from your sins and go to heaven? If there's nobody there who can do that because there's been no culture of training people to reach the lost, then that dream is wasted. And that man's visit is wasted. But if you have a strategy for planting churches to reach the lost, then more and more, Those sorts of encounters are not only going to happen, but they're going to bear fruit. I had another example recently where I'm sure the Lord might have sent me this person to encourage me as well. As I said, we're doing this door knocking every week with a fantastic group of um, evangelists. And um, we do it systematically, so we work through the the parish. And the time came when we were going to knock on the house next door to where I live. And I was more than a little nervous. And I thought, this... This one matters even more. You know, every, every door matters, but they're, they're my next-door neighbors. So the way I am, whether they like me, whether they want to have anything to do with the church, this matters disproportionately to me. 
And I knocked on the door of this um, block of flats next to the vicarage. And it was opened by a woman. And I explained who I was and what we were doing. And um, it was nice to meet her. And she said, oh, no one from the church has ever knocked on my door. I said, really, how long have you been here? 25 years. Since they built the block, actually. Wow. To my surprise, she invited me in and we, we sat on her sofa and she, told, she opened up and, um, and told me a bit about her life and her problems. We prayed together at the end of the conversation. It was amazing. Uh, I said, really, at the end, have you, have you never met a vicar even though you live next door to them? And she said, well, I did meet one once. It was when my sons were little and they used to play football in the yard. And of course, because I had three boys, they just kicked the ball over the fence into the vicarage garden. And uh, I went round there uh, when it first happened to ask if I could have the ball back. And the vicar at the time answered the door. I said, please, could I have the ball back? Because my kids have kicked it over the fence. And he said, no. And she said, but it's my kids and they just kicked the ball over the fence. And please, could I have... No. And then she said, hang on. Didn't Jesus say, let the little children come to me? (laughs) Saying this to a vicar in his dog collar. And apparently he went... And he closed the door. So I apologized for the behavior of that vicar. She said, oh, don't worry, I think there was something wrong with him. Um, <laughs> I apologized that no one had ever said hello to her for the past 25 years. And uh, she said, I'd really like to come to your church. This morning when Phil was here, uh, probably cause, because Phil Alcock was there, we had, um, we had 10 guests there this morning out of a congregation of uh, what, 40, 40, 45, something like that. I quite like that ratio. Ten new people out of 45. So you see, what I'm trying to say to you is not that we're anything special, but if you do have an evangelistic ethos and you plant a church to reach new people, it does work. And what I want to explore with you in this passage is how, in what manner ought we to keep doing this? Because it works. It's fantastic. And I hope you share the joy that I have in um, doing it because you've given so sacrificially and still are in many ways. Therefore, how, in what manner ought we to continue doing this? This woman in Mark chapter 14, her manner and the reason she's recorded for us in Mark is to show us it's with devotion to Christ. Devotion to Christ as Lord and Savior. Devotion to Christ as as the person of supreme worth in my life who nothing is too much trouble for. And in that manner, Jesus' little commission here will be fulfilled. The gospel will be preached through all the earth and they'll tell the stories of people's utter devotion to Christ. Can you believe they did this for him? Isn't it wonderful? So what I want to do with you, just, just for a moment or two, is um, contrast the two different types of people in the story with you. I think we have them here on the screen. We'll look at um, some others, especially Judas, uh, because that's the crowd, the sort of uh, the, the throng who are at this meal, and we're not really told their names apart from Judas, so we'll look at them, and then we'll look at the woman together, and how in her warmth, in her uh, generosity, she seems to be a lesson for us all in how to do this. Okay? So let's start with the first group. Uh, some others, especially Judas. Verse 4. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Oh my goodness. Do you see how 
I mean, they've got a financial point, I suppose, but how cold. They rebuked her harshly, this woman who just wanted to express her love for Christ. Let's skip down to verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So these guys, they, they, they top and they tail the passage. In the heart of the passage is this woman. And we're supposed to understand them, I think, as a foil for this woman. This, this crowd at the dinner, and they are so frosty and cold. They're so obsessed with saving money that they can't even see that Jesus Christ is having dinner with them. And I want to look with, look with you at this question. Where did they go wrong? Because if they went wrong, if they were ordinary people who had a connection with Jesus Christ, but it went cold, I want to know about that. I really want, I want to avoid that danger. The clues in the passage suggest that they went wrong with two things, status and money. Firstly, status. We begin in uh, verse 1 with some clues about this. The Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. So we're told that their, their status is this. They were chief priests and teachers of the law. And we know, because we've, we've read the Gospels, that we, they had a problem with Jesus. He was the statusless itinerant preacher. They were the uh, hierarchy guys who had all the roles sorted for them in the Sanhedrin. And they had everything sorted out. They were the career religious men. But they were threatened by him. So their status was under threat. You get this compounded, uh, verse 2, not during the festival, they said. Let's not do it then, or the people may riot. And presumably that would threaten our status. If, if we let them riot, if we let them get the upper hand, then we might end up losing our role in the hierarchy. You get it again uh, in verse 4. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, who is this woman? Why this waste of perfume? She is, of course, a statusless woman. We're not even told her name in this passage. She comes along and draws the attention and the spotlight to herself. And they can't handle the idea that she might be, I don't know, usurping them, being more religious than them or more devoted than them. And it's a threat to their status. These guys, I mean... They would have done uh, knowing God. You don't call it that anymore, do you? What was it called? DG. Everything's changed since I left. <laughs> you know, they would have done all the courses. They would have read um, the, the Old Testament and can quote it back to you. They've got the knowledge in their mind, but they, they just want to keep it that way and keep the um, upper hand over against everybody else. They want to preserve their status. And they also want to preserve money. And this gets mentioned even more in the passage. You see verse 3. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. And she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. And of course they, they say indignantly to one another, why this waste? This could be more than a year's wages. Then this is compounded. Verse 10, you get Judas going off to um, sell Jesus Christ for money. And they're delighted with that. What a, what, a, what a price to pay. That's fantastic. These people, they would never plant churches because it's too costly. They would never take a risk with finances that, that puts their money or their status at risk because it's too risky. They would much rather freeze their spiritual life as it is. 
You see, their mindset is cold, frosty towards Jesus or anybody else who's lavish. And they say, if we could just, if we could just cryogenically freeze our religious status right now, that would be fantastic for us. That would really work very well. Let's just put the whole thing on pause because we've got the top spot right now. We look really impressive right now. Financially, it's really working very well for us right now. So let's just keep it right there, please. Okay, everybody okay with that? Maybe you get to the start of a new year and you think, actually, it's pretty good right now. I mean, if I could just pause it, if I could freeze my spiritual life as I am right now, I've acquired a degree of Bible knowledge, I'm accepted and feel comfortable at church. If I could just stop it there, I'd be pretty happy. In the whole process of um, church planting, Two conversations really stick in my memory. The first was with, with Phil. Uh, when uh, in an unguarded moment, I let slip what I was thinking in the, in the planning process. And I said, Phil, this was in our office when he was munching on one of my brownies. <laughs> Phil, I don't want to go to Haringey. Who's ever heard of Haringey? I mean, Christchurch Mayfair, that sounds a lot more impressive. Oh, what have I said? And um, I'm glad I said it because he said... Obscurity is okay because God sees you. You've just got to go and be faithful to the gospel and you can help people there. I'm very grateful for those words because it taught me not to try and preserve, not to try and freeze my status because I was so pleased with it, but to give myself away. The other conversation that sticks in my mind uh, was with uh, Matt Fuller, actually. And... Um, when I was anxious and um, wondering whether we would have enough resources and money, he said, uh, words to the effect of, Pete, I'm going to give you as much as I possibly can. I'm going to be generous towards you because I want people to hear the gospel in North London. And uh, I remember that conversation as well. In fact, it makes me, uh, it's very moving to me to think about that because it is, it's people's lavish generosity Telling me to give myself away for Jesus Christ in order that other people might know about him. And we ought to beware. We ought to beware of a network or a church or any group of leaders which would encourage us to just, just freeze things as they are. Don't take any risks for the Lord Jesus. Because you've got it pretty good right now. That was the mindset of uh, some of the others. And especially Judas. Enough about the, the coldness. Let's, let's turn and let's consider this woman in, in, in her warmth and her generosity. Fascinatingly, I think, we're not told her name. Isn't that interesting? In verse 3, she's just a woman. I think in God's um, wisdom, that is because it doesn't matter about her name. I think that's, that's Mark the Evangelist just saying to us, don't worry about her name. You can find out when you're in heaven if you want. But what matters is her act and her devotion. We're actually told much more about what she did. As I mentioned in verse 3, she comes with very expensive perfume. Very expensive. I've been married um, seven years. Uh, even though, as the old ladies at St. Paul's Harringay say, but you only look 19. <laughs> and as all the 20-somethings say, yeah, and you look a bit like that guy out of Doctor Who as well. <laughs> But um, I've been married seven years, and one of the great shocks uh, when I was newly married uh, and we approached uh, Sarah's first birthday um, when we were married uh, is I said, what would you like for your birthday? And she said, oh, 
I'd like some perfume. And I said, okay, I'll go and choose some. She said, no, no. Uh, <laughs> I'd like this perfume. And um, she told me she wanted this one. And uh, I went and looked it up online and said, what? <laughs> what? For 35 milliliters? How much are you going to charge me? And uh, unfortunately, birthdays keep recurring. And she keeps wondering, this <laughs> perfume... There's another one coming up. He's bankrupting me. But she, she's insisting, it must be this perfume, please. I thought you were offering me a birthday present. This one, thank you very much. Actually, this sermon has done me a lot of good because I've realized it's not the most expensive perfume in the world. I've, I've just picked out a few um, to, um, to show you what I mean. I think we've got some pictures here. Um, Joy uh, by Jean Patou of Paris. This is an expensive perfume. You could buy this at Harrods for £250 for a bottle. Apparently the price is inflated because in that bottle there are 8,000 jasmine petals. And they only grow for a fortnight and they can harvest them for a fortnight from a particular town in France. And then they sort of juice the jasmine or something. I don't know what they do. <laughs> Sell it for £250 a bottle. But it's not even as expensive as this one which is called the Sacred Tears of Thebes. <laughs> and it costs you £765. <sighs> I kid you not, it contains frankincense, myrrh, <laughs> and amethyst. Yeah, I was hoping they were going to say gold. But apparently the little, little purple triangle, I think, or something in there, is an amethyst precious stone, so they can just charge even more for it. But the most expensive perfume in the world is this. It's called DKNY Golden Delicious. Sounds like an apple to me. Uh, but there's, there's only one in the, in the world, and it, it's called the Million Dollar Bottle. Guess how much it costs? A million dollars. Yeah. Uh, it, it contains 2,700 precious stones, including a 2.4-carat diamond and a 3-carat ruby. It took 1,500 hours for one jeweler to make it, and it's supposed to look like the New York City skyline and it costs a million dollars it's just a piece of jewelry isn't it it's not so much a perfume i don't even know what the perfume is but this perfume back in our passage this was a very expensive perfume made of pure nard and in verse five it could have been sold for more than a year's wages so let's let's, let's upgrade that to everyday terms what's more at the average wage in the uk or in london what's that somewhere in the twenty thousand pound mark so more than a year's wages, let's call it £30,000 for a bottle of perfume in today's money. Wow. This pure nard, apparently it's, it's called spike nard. It grows in the Himalayas. So in Jesus' time, if you wanted this bottle of perfume, one of the places you were going to have to go to get it is the Himalayas. Uh, and uh, no wonder it's expensive, this pure nard. And she gets a jar made of alabaster. The only way into this um, in a wholesale sort of way is just to break it. So she breaks the jar and pours the perfume on Jesus' head. Wow. She does redefine waste here. Or rather Jesus does in the way he addresses what she does. You see, so that the big problem that these, these cold-hearted people have got is, is waste. Verse 4, why this waste of perfume? Come on. More than a year's wages. We could give that away. We could put that money to work. And this sort of attitude, it would have its home in the UK in the 21st century. We live in an anti-age 
day and age, uh, anti-waste day and age, where let's recycle as much as possible. That's another thing that's changed since I left. I'm not really keen on recycling. Uh, coffee cups and all that sort of thing. My sister works in um, the Selfridges office, and apparently if you walk into the Selfridges uh, head office with a plastic bottle, they just tell you to get out, go away, and, and, and um, bring something recyclable back. Uh, we live in, a, in that sort of age where everything's uh, anti-waste, recycled, the age of austerity, where we must sh- shrink the budget and the footprint, where you can buy an app to save you time, and if my train on the, on the digital readout is more than the two minutes it says it's going to be, then I get really cross. And an, an age of bucket lists where I mustn't waste my life because I've only got so much time. But Jesus says, do you see? Verse 6, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. So he redefines waste for us and says, I'm sure Jesus would say, be a good steward of the planet. Do the things you are doing, which make sense of your resources. But this is not a waste. This thing that she's done is a beautiful thing. So you've got to redefine it. You need a new word. And of course, honoring people is not a waste, is it? If... If I take care of an elderly parent in the old age of their life and I devote myself to them and I take care of them when they need looking after, that's not a waste. You don't, you don't get to their funeral and think, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. If you devote yourself to somebody in marriage for many, many years, you don't get up at your golden wedding anniversary and say, oh, it wasn't really worth all the faithfulness, was it? What a waste of time. The sorts of speeches people make at golden wedding anniversaries are testament to the beautiful faithfulness of marriage. Or friendship. You know, you, sometimes you don't even realize how much time you've invested in a friendship until years down the line you think, I am really good friends with you. We've wasted a lot of time together. But it's beautiful, it's fantastic, and it's deep now. I came across this story in, in the last few months in Haringey um, about this guy. He's called Herbert Barringer. And he went to St. Paul's Haringey in um, the early 1900s. I came across him because of Remembrance Day. And we were remembering some of the war dead at St. Paul's. And I discovered that this guy, his parents were married at St. Paul's Haringey. And um, then he was born and baptized there. He lived two streets down from where I live now in North London. He was brought up at the church. He went to Sunday school and youth group. And then when the First World War broke out, he signed up to join the Navy. He was in the Battle of Jutland. He was a submariner. Uh, Fourth class artificer, apparently, was was his title. And the Battle of Jutland was one of the major sea engagements of the First World War. And his submarine was lost at sea. So the parents... And the church at St. Paul's, they knew this battle had happened. They waited days and days and days for any word until they got the telegram that no parent wants. I'm, I'm so sorry. He's missing, presumed dead. He never came back. There's an article about him in the parish magazine about his bravery and uh, how that we're all praying for the, for the family, Mr. and Mrs. Barringer. And I thought, are you a waste? Herbert? I mean, do we, do we think that sinking to the bottom of the sea where no, no one even knows where his resting place is, is that a waste of a life? And of course, everybody on Remembrance Day would say, no, because you gave your life for other people. And we salute soldiers at war who have this devotion 
this other-centeredness because they're willing to give their life. It's not a waste to give your life for other people. And if that's true of any human being who's made in the image of God, how much more true of a devotion to Jesus? You see how he phrases it? Verse 6, she's done a beautiful thing to me. He goes on to make this even more about himself. Verse 7, the poor you'll always have with you. Implication, take, take care of people who you need to take care of in your community. Christians should do that. You can help them anytime you want, but you'll not always have me. And she did what she could. So no devotion to Jesus is a waste. And of course, he ends up talking about his little commission. Look, look guys, the gospel is going to be preached throughout the whole wide entire world. What she's done is going to be told everywhere in memory of her. Implication? I wonder what you could do. Those are actually the words I want to leave you with. This is where Jesus goes in verse 8. She did what she could. I don't even think she did what she uh, planned. I don't think she knew what she was doing. See how Jesus links it to his burial? She poured perfume on my body, verse 8, beforehand to prepare for my burial. I mean, wow. Get a grip on that. So, of course, this is two days before the feast. Jesus is about to be executed. He knows he's going to die, but I don't think the other rest of the disciples have understood it yet. So I don't think she would have done either. But what she's done in pouring this nard on his body means that even when everyone's deserted him, even when all the disciples, even Peter, has run away, even when people are just spitting on him and flogging him, his body is going to smell like this amazing perfume. This active devotion is going to be in his nostrils. People are going to be walking past thinking, what is that? It's because of what she did. She did what she could. She didn't even know what she was doing. She didn't know that the cross, I don't think, was going to be the central act in human history. The dividing line for humanity. She, she didn't know that this was probably the fulfillment of all that God had promised. But she did what she could. What could you do? Uh, I like to think of her in my imagination. You know, she, she went to this meal with Jesus. She probably knew she was going with a few hours' notice. So I like to think of her looking around her little house. I imagine it was a simple affair. She doesn't seem to be super rich. She had some simple furniture in the house. And you know how you, when you go for a dinner with someone, you might think, ooh, what could I take? Uh, I haven't really got any wine or chocolates. And then I think she must have spotted the perfume jar on the shelf and thought, that perfume. That was, that's probably a family heirloom. You know, Granny gave me that. I'm going to take that. And she just takes it. In this lavish moment, she comes in cradling this alabaster jar and she did what she could. In my uh, Anglicanness, uh, I know that today is Epiphany. And Epiphany is the day when we remember the wise men coming to see Jesus. And uh, in that Christmas carol, in the bleak midwinter, we remember this. You know that final verse of In the Bleak Midwinter? It goes like this. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. And I like to think, if I were this woman, I would bring pure nard. I know, it's a bit silly, but I think that's, that's what she did. She did what she could. What could you do? It may be that as you, as you sit here hearing about this, this frosty group 
who are chilly towards the Lord Jesus, you realize, actually, my status is a big thing for me. And in just the same way, she brought this alabaster jar of perfume to Jesus and she broke it. Maybe the Lord is calling you to, to break the, the jar of your status. Could you break that this year? I, I, I'm content to give away my status, Lord, if it means you could be known. If, as an act of devotion, more people could know about Christ, then take my status away. I don't need it anyway. Or just as they were concerned for money, and uh, we might be storing up money, as it were, in a little jar, would it be good to say to the Lord this year, Lord, I don't need this money. I can't take it to heaven with me anyway. Just break the jar if you need it more. If people could know about Jesus... If churches could be planted with this money, then I don't need it. Take it away from me. And then uh, what could you do corporately? I'll leave you with this. But uh, together in the commission, there is something very special that the Lord is doing. As together we plant churches. And it brings me such a lot of joy to be back with you tonight and celebrate one little thing the Lord has been doing in his kingdom in St. Paul's Haringey. And just imagine if we kept going with that attitude of devotion towards the Lord Jesus. If we kept going, and just as Jesus says in his little commission, the gospel will be preached throughout the whole world, if we just kept saying, okay, well, let's push on and looking for more opportunities. Of course, every church was planted at some point, and uh, most churches need revitalizing at some point. So there are endless opportunities to keep planting churches. And 60 churches by 2025 is not actually very many. It sounds a lot to us at the moment if you try and maintain the status quo, but it's not very many. Do you know the percentage of people who go to church in the UK? 8%. Apparently just under 2% of them go to Church of England churches. Not that that matters. But 8%. If we were to double that, you would have 16%, wouldn't you? 16%. I mean, if we doubled the amount of people going to church in this country, we would be writing books about it. I mean, it would be lauded as a huge revival. There would be hymns, and the great leaders would go down in history, and we'd be celebrating what God has done. It would be fantastic if we doubled the amount of people going to church to 16%. But it would still leave 84% of people not going to church. 84%. I delight to uh, be involved in church planting, but we must keep doing it with the same warm-hearted devotion that this woman showed. And imagine what God could do if, if we were able to just have just a fraction of this woman's love and warmth and passion for the Lord Jesus. I, I, I hope that there might be an opportunity for some of you to join a church plant in the future it would bring us a lot of joy at St Paul's Haringey if there was another one elsewhere in the city and we just were sort of cheering you on and praying for you I hope that many of you might just stay here for many years to come because I can't tell you how encouraging you are to me when you send me a little email let me know that you're praying for us turn up one Sunday and just say keep going guys that's really good and with that attitude then Jesus' little commission will bear much fruit. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this story and this woman. So grateful for her example to us. 
confess to you that uh, so often we are like these, uh, these others, including Judas. We just want to preserve things. We just want to keep the status quo, play it safe, stay comfortable. But in our heart of hearts, with the power of the Holy Spirit in us, having been born again, we really want to just give our lives away. We want to give our status back to you. We want to give our money back to you. We want to uh, take risks for you if it means that people could hear about the gospel of the Lord Jesus. That would bring us such a lot of joy. And we'd be able to look back at our lives when it's all said and done. And people are burying us. And we might be able to say, yeah, that was worth it. That was the best way to live. So in your kindness, would you do that work amongst us? We thank you so much for what you're doing in commission. And we pray you wouldn't stop. We pray you'd, you'd give us the energy and the resources to keep going so that we might reach people with the best news we've ever heard. In Jesus' name, amen.